Hey everyone, welcome back to Down to Brown. It's me, Lahari, and you may have noticed that I sound a little sexier. Um, at least I'd like to think so, but probably not. I have COVID, so it finally came for me. Frankly, this is more of an ego hit than anything. Um, I truly believed that maybe I could avoid it. Maybe I could tell my grandkids one day that your grandma never had COVID, but I will have to tell them that I did. However, I'm very, very grateful for that vaccine and the privilege to be able to quarantine in my home. So feeling very blessed in many ways as well. This past weekend, I was in Vancouver, Canada, celebrating one of my best friends getting married, Neela. I met Neela when I was 12 years old. So that means I've known her for two whole decades. I can be that person who's like, I've known you for 20 years. In addition to just being an incredible friend to me for this long, Neelam is someone who is really key to my identity journey. We both grew up in a very non-representative, diverse town of Pleasanton, California. And if you've seen the Netflix documentary White Hot about Abercrombie and Fitch, it was literally that come to life times five. This is especially shocking to me because I had grown up in a pretty representative, at least for South Asians. Um, California is not always the most diverse everywhere. (laughs) Um, But at least for South Asians, I was growing up in San Jose, where there are a lot. And then I went to India, India and moved. And so coming to Pleasanton was pretty shocking because I I had never felt more like I did not look like people. I did not act like people, etc. And so Neelam and I not only got to connect with each other over being Indian, but also we got to have a special time where we got to teach each other and welcome each other into our own subcultures of being Indian. Neelam is Punjabi Sikh, you know, and I'm Telugu Hindu. So we got to show each other each other's sides and families and events and temples. And I just feel so lucky that we got to share this with each other because it really helped me brought in my thinking of what it meant to be Indian. And then later on, that developed into what it meant to be South Asian and ipso facto, dot, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Eventually down the line, it started to get me involved in activities like putting on South Asian fusion shows or to show kind of the combination of our cultures to then coming up with Down to Brown. (laughs) So I just am always going to be grateful for Neela and the role she played in helping me embrace my daisiness and love my daisiness. The other thing about being in Canada was it was very appropriate to be there the weekend before releasing this episode because, as we know, Sahajan and its founder and CEO, Lisa Matam, is a Toronto, Canada-based company. But... Lisa, while she lives in Toronto, is having a completely global impact with her Ayurvedic skincare. I am truly so excited to share this conversation with Lisa, not just because objectively her resume reads badass. Um, She, of course, has a business master's. She was a pharmaceutical executive for many years. She then founded multiple companies. She had a consulting group for leadership development, an accelerator targeted specifically for Canadian women, and then became the founder and CEO of Sahajan in 2015. 
I think entrepreneur was always in her blood, it seems like, but also thought leadership. That is probably my favorite thing about Lisa is the more you talk to her, it's not that she just talks about her product or her brand or her own story. She's curious and thoughtful about the space she's in. She's asking a lot of questions to different people about Ayurveda. She's thinking a lot about her responsibility as a mother, as a woman. She's thinking a lot about the future of, you know, when she puts out a product like Sahajan, where could it go? What happens when Ayurveda goes from mainstream popularity to perhaps the borderline of appropriation? You know, there's a lot of interesting insight that Lisa shares. And to top it all off, she's an incredibly kind and considerate and empathetic person. So I truly, Lisa really, really stood out to me and I was truly inspired by her. In fact, when we were starting the conversation, I had just read the decision of Roe v. Wade being officially overturned. And I was pretty devastated. I didn't know how I was going to be chipper in this interview. And I really wanted to show up strong for Lisa. But Lisa asked me right off the bat, because she had just seen the news herself. And we connected first as women, as individuals, and then we jumped into our conversation. And now, hear for yourself why I think Lisa is one of my favorite South Asian entrepreneurs representing us. All right, hello, Lisa Matam, welcome. Thank you so much, I'm so glad to be here. You too. I can't believe I'm talking to the genius behind Sahajan. Oh, As I mentioned, so huge fan, huge fan. You were one of the pioneers. So appreciate the work that you do. Thank you so much. No, I'm so excited to talk about um, stuff. And it really makes it makes me happy to know that you know the brand, that you use the brand. All that stuff makes me just very happy. Oh, of course. Yeah, I couldn't be oh, a poser. interviewing and you. <laughs> And I just realized you have a beautiful puppy in the background. So that even makes me happy too. Oh yeah. She's very chill. So people often don't know that she's even there. Um, I know she just moved. So I was (laughs) like, speaking of Ayurveda, she's quite the yogi energy. So, Um, but I'd love to get into our conversation about how this whole thing started. You know, it was so, um, when I remember seeing this appear in the market and just even knowing that Mm -hmm. it was out there, I was like, How did it take this long for us to think Mm -hmm. about this? These are the secrets and stories we've heard growing up from our parents, but Mm -hmm. it's certainly not something I expected to see on the shelves and be advertised in magazines that I grew up, like never seeing Mm -hmm. anything Brown represented. So Mm -hmm. very curious, like what season of life were you in when Sahajan, the concept, the idea hit you, where were you in your life? Yeah. I can exactly tell you where I was because it, in some ways, like it's a, it was a long time ago, but it feels like it was yesterday. I, so I had started a career in pharmaceuticals, um, was working in marketing and strategy, l- left to become a consultant and was consulting in a number of verticals, but doing a lot of strategic work in pharma still. And then I came home, I was pregnant with my second child and I came home and my daughter, who was almost three, had gotten into my skincare and you know, had it all over her face. Like she had it on her arm. She had it over it super thick, you know, the way that if you, if you have kids or nieces or nephews, you've seen, like they just play with things mm-hmm. and she looks so cute. And I remember being like, Oh my gosh, you're so cute. And I remember looking up and thinking, that's probably a million dollars on your face. Like I had all these like different <laughs> emotions and 
But one of them was like, you need to take that off your skin. I have no idea what it's going to do to your young, beautiful skin. And so I walked up the stairs and I was like, look, if you want to play with things, you need to play with these things. And I sort of took her to her room and there were these bottles of of oils, essentially, that my parents had brought back from India, my parents being from Kerala. And it was in that moment that I had this huge like moment, like I had a series of, of thoughts that drew through my head. And one was, if my skincare isn't good enough for her, then it likely isn't good enough for me. If that, if I'm that concerned about the chemicals and the ingredients and all of those things. And secondly, it's really clear that this is what I trust, that when it comes to trust, I lean on these things that my parents had brought me from India, things that they would have used on me, their parents would have used on them. And, and I also had a little bit of like, how had it taken me so long to get here? Mm. Because, you know, I grew up in an environment where my dad was into yoga, where we, we didn't use the word Ayurveda growing up, but my parents being from Kerala, which is in so many ways, the epicenter of Ayurveda, like it was in my life. Like I used, you know, he put turmeric on our couples. We were always oiling our hair, like so many of those things that were fundamental. Um, were part of my life. And, you know, I felt like I was on this journey of wellness. I had been a fitness instructor for many years. I was, you know, trying to deliberately eat healthy. And I was like, how had it taken me so long to get here with my skincare? And so I looked around and I was like, one, at that time, there was so little in the clean world. And I was looking for ingredients that I knew and I trusted and I believed in, like turmeric, like moringa, like things I had been exposed to. And they there was just a dearth. And so being from Toronto, even more so, but at the time, like, this makes me sound like really, you know, there were, you know, there were a few brands who maybe had a sprinkling of Ayurvedic ingredients or Indian inspired, if you want to say ingredients without the sharing of what they actually were. And I just thought this is a big miss and it's a big miss because I know we can deliver on great skin. And it's a big miss because within our culture are these unbelievable recipes that we're all using in our houses or, you know, like maybe like me had walked away from for a while in the, you know, in the spirit of joining the masses and conventional beauty. And we all needed to get back there. Like I hadn't oiled my hair from probably when I told my parents I was done till I started the brand again. And now you, now there's no way you could get me not to. And so I felt like, you know, this was about me coming back to what felt right for me, going back to my intuition but it was also about me taking all of my experience and, and putting it into a brand where I could show other people, like you can get your best skin from Ayurveda. I know it. And so let me prove it to you. And so, you know, we worked on the initial formulations with two Ayurvedic doctors in India with like a newborn. I would like take these calls with a newborn, like sitting by my chair in a car seat sometimes. Um, and we, that's, you know, we just got started and I, it really became a mission. It became, you know, I could see, I could see that there was something missing in skincare and I could see that Ayurveda could, could address that. And, and that we weren't, and to your point, like we all grew up with this. We need it back in our lives. We, or we want it back in our lives or, you know, someone, you know, we, I I often describe it to people as we want the ritual and the experience of our childhood but sometimes we want it in a modernized fashion. And I was like, we can, we can do all of that. And then we took the two leading SKUs and did clinicals against them and basically said like, this can go against any conventional product in your department store or in your Sephora. And so it was a journey, but it's one that I was the whole time just so focused on pushing forward. 
There are several things that you said that really, I mean, everything stood out, but there are several points I'd love to ask you more about. And one is Mm -hmm. I just love this origin story of there's so much heart to the like home, um, like what we've grown up with those routines Mm -hmm. and your connection to mother. Um, even in like, when I read about the Dalai Lama, he always thought, you know, like I'm a huge fan since high school. And, um, he talks about how, like, if, if you fail to ever sympathize or empathize with someone, at least think about the fact that everyone comes from a mother. Um, and like that mother's love is like something fundamentally Mm -hmm. when you're born. And the reason Mm -hmm. I bring that up is I I adore how you brought that up from the lens of like watching my daughter use these products. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember even growing up because we had such chemically based products and we really didn't know otherwise, um, Mm -hmm. and wanting to fit in, right. Like that's a big part of like, even what I'm hearing about you say about Ayurveda and like taking a break from oiling hair. Cause I'd yeah, using this word now, but like, I'd be like, mom, it's Bobby. I don't want to smell like coconut oil. Yeah. Right? Oh my school. God. I'd be like, I don't want to smell like coconut oil. Like people yeah. joke that they can like fry their bacon. I remember there was a kid who was like, I can fry my bacon in your hair. And I was like, I know. And um, I felt so embarrassed when like, yeah, my girls were telling me like, oh, I put coconut oil in my hair. Like, you know, the last few years. And I'd be like, wow, that's our thing. Like, yeah, I, but I gave it up. Like I rejected I, it's it. Exactly. I rejected it. That's exactly it. Mm-hmm. Totally. And so even my mom would like be like, oh my God, everything's just in the kitchen. Just use what's in the kitchen. Yeah. And I think there is beauty of like using the natural elements. So mm-hmm. I just so appreciate that you took that step because I'm sure a lot of us maybe even thought like, wow, if only I could find this, but to make it happen is half the work. Mm-hmm. And we need someone like you to be able to break that need mm-hmm. and address it. Mm-hmm. So I'm very curious, like how you were able to, what helped and didn't help perhaps from having like pharmaceutical is a very like Western science mm-hmm. is arguably our Eastern science. And yeah. so what, how do you feel like it benefited you and how do you feel like it limited you in the beginning, perhaps to have both of those perspectives and education? Absolutely. So you know, it's funny because it, it, I almost think of our parents sometimes, or, or maybe I'll speak to my own, as like interesting contradictions. Cause my dad would be like, you have to use this natural supplement. You should take this, you should take that, but also become a doctor. And so <laughs> in and of itself, I think we're always kind of raised in that, the, the two sides of that. Um, but I think it really helped me having come from a pharma background. One, I didn't appreciate that cosmetics weren't as regulated as like, I knew they wouldn't be as regulated as pharma, but I didn't realize, um, the sort of that the basic regulatory was, was going to be what it was that I thought I would be sending in formulas and at least somebody would be testing them to say, yeah, you can sell that to people and put that on their face. But that, that isn't in fact the case. And even as an indie beauty founder, when I first started, I live in Canada. So, you know, we submit to help Canada every time we launch a product. And so we submit to them the formula and the ingredients and all of those things, which makes sense because we're g- using ingredients that are generally regarded as safe. And so I, I understand the logic, but I think having come from a pharma perspective, I really had the perspective of efficacy about making claims that were actually true. And I had the perspective of, of doing, I think, due diligence on the product. So one of the things that you know, early clean beauty founders struggled with. And I completely understand why is like the stability of the product or, you know, people Mm -hmm. would use preservatives that came from mushrooms or beets, which sounds great. Sometimes your product doesn't last with that. Whereas I came from the perspective of there's nothing worse for your skin than a poorly preserved product. So we, 
we put a lot of those elements in place really early. And I think that was what delivered on the efficacy of the product, but it also what I'm learning now as we're like six years in is that foundation has also, or not I'm learning now, but what I'm seeing is that also created an element of, of the capability to scale. Because if not, we would be reformulating and redoing things and all of those types of things. And even, you know, people had said to me like, oh, I always hear these stories about people making things in their kitchens. Why don't you? And I'd be like, have you seen my kitchen? Like, you don't want anything that's made from there on your face. And because I came from a pharma background, I was like, who would, you know, why would, why would I in a mass way? Like, it's one thing to have my mom, you know, my dad whip up an egg mask. It's another thing for me to then put it in a jar and give it to yeah. you. And so it really gave me those foundational pieces that as you grow business are really important. I think the hindrance, and I wouldn't say it's a hindrance, but it's more that my approach is a little bit more pragmatic, mm. I'll say. So I wanted to, ha- like, I really took a really wide ranging, I could have, you know, my process before we launched was over two years because I went through a branding process and I wanted it to look great. But in addition to that, while we were working on the formulas, I gave it to 25 people and did a formal survey where I got their input. And those things are all amazing. But when I see the speed at which other founders, for example, launch, you know, I added in extra steps because to me, that was the most prudent way. But sometimes you have to be able to navigate your landscape and and do things. And so I think if there was a hindrance to my background, it would just be that like I was building steps and being pragmatic and doing um, sometimes lots of due diligence to, because that was my comfort level. Whereas now I understand better, like this is the area to, you know, go super deep when it comes to the, the, the diligence and, and, but, you know, you can, you don't need to, you know, you don't need a 25 person panel every time you want to launch a product, you yeah. know, you find your core users, you know, like those, those elements of it. I think I needed to, to really, um, to really navigate. Absolutely. I hear that more and more about like, focus on your niche first and the people who are mm-hmm. there for you first. And eventually mm-hmm. actually people tend to catch on and they, they want to participate or learn more about that niche and space. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's certainly what's happening with Ayurveda as well. And, you know, first, before I even start that whole chapter, like, I'd love to actually ask, you know, we talk about it a lot, but just for anyone listening, can you help ground us? Like, what is Ayurveda, you know, and how, what would you define it as? It's it's not just beauty, of course, and like, you know, no. aesthetic. Mm-hmm. So how would you define it? I define it. So the translation from Sanskrit is the science of life. Um, you know, for someone who's not been exposed to it before, it is the ancient traditional wellness science of India. So, you know, prior to Western medicine, and there's, there's some fundamentals that they, they share in common, but people often describe it in many ways, you know, from a beauty perspective, you know, the, it has a, a number of recipes that the royals of India and the rest of the in, Indian society use to keep beautiful, but really I see it as the science of life that keeps you well. And whereas oftentimes Western medicine focuses on how to get you healthy when you're sick, Ayurveda focuses on how to be healthy. And so its main premise is that to be well, you have to be in balance. And when you're out of balance, you get sick. And so, and that um, out of balance manifests itself in a lot of ways. It could be in stomach issues. It could be in um, reflux. It could be in acne. It could be in other things. And so Um, Ayurveda believes that the mind, the body, they're, you know, it's a mind body science. They're all connected. 
And so the reason for me that it's such an important science is because it is, it does acknowledge the mind body connection and it's very intuitive. And so it, I, I think people don't have to go deep into the Ayurveda practice. You can, if you want to, but there's some things like very intuitively that Ayurveda says that when you look, listen to them, you're kind of like, huh, that, that, that seems to make sense. Like that would, that would make sense as a way to proactively manage my health. Um, and so it, uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty powerful science and to those that are exposed to it in different ways, we see people dipping their toes into it every day, right? When people are picking out their golden milk lattes, like that is Ayurveda, right? Like that is, if you've had a turmeric latte or a golden milk, however you call it, but you know, that's an Ayurvedic recipe that's going to nourish, detox, cleanse, you know, build immunity. All of those things are contained in there, but those are the things that our parents were making us, you know, drink when we were kids. And, and so with, we see people doing, whether it's the food, whether it's beauty, whether it's practices, we see people doing those every day. And Ayurveda is really, is really where that comes from. It's, and, and so what I think is actually happening is not, is yes, Ayurveda is growing, but people are starting to realize like, oh, mm-hmm. me drinking lemon and water in the morning, that's Ayurveda. Oh, wow. Like me using yoga as a means, not necessarily to build strength or to, you know, have it be my workout, but to use this pose to manage again, my reflux or my stress, that's Ayurveda. For sure. I think it's so mm-hmm. fascinating. And like, especially cause a lot of these things, maybe our parents never had the kind of science behind it every time to connect yes. us. Like, you know, my mm-hmm. parents would talk a lot about like, um, running it's the concept of dosha, right? Like running hot yes. or cold or your yeah. body in like certain seasons and like what food mm-hmm. you should be eating then. And like yogurt mm-hmm. for that gut health, but they wouldn't mm-hmm. say it that way. And so I'd be like, mm-hmm. oh, dad, you don't understand. And then now it's like, you literally see packages of like yogurt with pro- probiotics. And you're like, that's yes. a given. That's what yogurt is supposed to do, right? Like and have. Yes. You don't need to yes. call it out, right? Um, no. My mm-hmm. biggest joke is like usually when I see green tea and nowadays they like label it as gluten-free in like our grocery mm-hmm. stores. And I'm like, of course it's gluten-free. Like, what do you, what yeah. do you mean? When um, more people putting gluten in it. But yeah. <laughs> so things like that, we just, I, I don't think we consciously knew, but to your point, I appreciate you explaining that to the realm of like, it could be so much integrated into like an overall wellness um, and turmeric lattes is a sore spot for me because of what you just mentioned of, um, people now, like it's now a trend versus like mm-hmm. the science and what we grew up with it. Um, and one of the things that I kind of wonder about Ayurveda is as it becomes more popular, any South Asian concept, sometimes we are classically our, our work, our history tends to be taken by other cultures and spoken yes. about in a way that is not even us being the narrators of the story. If we look at a mm-hmm. British history museum, or even like now what we see with like turmeric or ginger, for example. And so I'm curious, like how you're so close to this space. Do you ever mm-hmm. worry? And like, what are your observations about Ayurveda almost becoming like the new yoga where mm-hmm. is there the potential of it becoming appropriated? So I think it's funny. Yeah. I, I hope it becomes the new yoga because I want it to be celebrated and accessible to people. What I, you know, in the sense of seniors who enjoy yoga at their community center, but also people who are going into their studios and and really investing in their yoga practice where, where I do get uncomfortable to your point is that I don't think you have to be from the diaspora to talk about it. 
but I do think you need to honor and respect it. So I'll give you an example. I was listening to a podcast. This was a couple of years ago and I was listening to a very prominent beauty editor talk about her experience with ashwagandha, which is an Ayurvedic ingredient. It's also considered an adaptogen now. So it helps your body manage stress. It helps your body get in balance. People love this ingredient now. It's in mm-hmm. all sorts of supplements and all, and and what she said was, oh, and I just and I discovered, she said, and I discovered, which by the way, you didn't discover it, but she said, and I discovered it. And she goes, and I don't know where it's from. But anyways, it really helps. And she Oh just, my God, Christopher Columbusing. <laughs> I know. And that was what, and that's the part that I really struggle with because what you realize is, is that to your point, not only are there, there's the Christopher Columbus element, which is I'm, I discovered this. I found this. There's the sort of, I don't know what the right word is. Fetishizing isn't quite the right word, but there's the element of like, I discovered this magic dust or I discovered this magic potion. Whereas it's like, it's not a magic potion. We've been using it for a number of years. And then there's the third element, which is really disconnecting it from the culture and the ritual and the practice. And I had a long conversation with someone who, you know, we, we talked about like, why is it bad for people to wear, you know, bindis at Coachella or whatever it is. And, and part of it is that people don't understand is that when you've had the experience of growing up with something and it's the thing that othered you, and then to have someone else from a dominant culture, not just give it the blessing, but say that they, it's theirs is very, very hard because they can yeah. say, I, you know, I oiled my hair and I wear it to yoga and I discovered this practice. It's no, actually like you're, you're enjoying something. It's like, I enjoy the many rituals from other cultures and I'm so grateful for that. And that's the language that's missing. And I yes. think when you've been othered, I think when you're not part of the dominant culture, that's the part that people miss is that in exploring and enjoying they've lost the cultural connection, they've lost the gratitude and they've lost the respect for what it is. And so do I want Ayurveda to blow up? Absolutely. Like my goal would be, never mind the brand, for people to be able to really appreciate and bring the science into their life in a way that manages their wellness, but certainly not in a way that disconnects it from the practice. Like I actually watched on Instagram an Ayurvedic practitioner. So someone who studied Ayurveda, who was not Satation. Again, I don't care. You don't have to be Satation to study. But then she her post was Ayurvedic, Ayurveda is not Indian. And I was like, what, what's that again? And, and, and she, her philosophy was, yes, it's a science for everybody, but we shouldn't connect it to India. And I thought, oh my gosh. Yeah. I found that really, I really the struggled. Audacity. I really struggled the audacity and the, and you know, when I go and study something, like if I were to go, I can't even think of a parallel thing, but it's the ownership that's taken by just the virtue of studying something. And she w- she actually went to India to study it. And so to be able to now say, I'm disconnecting it from the culture, you can't disconnect those two things because, you know, look at you and I, I'm not an Ayurvedic practitioner. I would never claim to be. Um, have I read? Have I done some study? Absolutely. Have I taken some courses? Sure. But most of that comes from my culture. It comes from my parents saying, do this. It comes from my parents saying, Oh, you know, you're, you're worried about the scarring. Here's what you should put on it. And so here's the great news is that also is in the Ayurvedic text, but that is culture. And so to say that it's not a part of our culture, like that, that's where I think I get a bit heated. 
Um, Absolutely. I think you've done, you've done a wonderful job explaining that and articulating that perspective. I think it's hard to sometimes help people understand like the othering aspect, especially. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've talked to a lot of folks who I know they're, for example, like allies, but they also have that point of view of like, it's, it's a global market. It's a global, you know, Mm -hmm. now like things that we share shouldn't have to belong to one person. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, if, if Indians make pasta, are they appropriating Italian culture? Right. But chances Mm -hmm. are Indians would also never say that, like, it's not Italian. We would get the credit to where it belongs. Like, and I think that's part of it as I use the pasta example a lot, because I also love pasta. Um, (laughs) but is that, I, I know that it's from, like, you know what I mean? I know it's Italian and I know that when my Greek friends make, and I might say this wrong, like the CCO, which is also pasta, but in a Greek format, like I know where that comes from. And I, and maybe I don't say it out loud, but I know that. And I acknowledge that I would never make it at home and be like, this is something I invented. Mm -hmm. I didn't invent that. And I think that's the disconnect. And I, and I, and I think that's the piece that people don't see is of course, it's a global market. And of course we should be enjoying these global things, but no one's saying that sushi is not Japanese. So, and I, and I think that's the risk that happens in the wellness culture in general, and not just for South Asian culture, but of many things Eastern is that like, I discovered matcha or I discovered this. It's, it's that element of disconnecting it from the culture. Absolutely. It's actually quite simple. I'm like, you know, often mm-hmm. I just am looking for someone to say, inspired by those culture yeah. like give the credit yeah. that's all I want mm-hmm. um for example right now I'm going through a major Ina Garten phase and people are kind of mm. like I'm surprised like you know my husband makes fun she's such a like privileged white rich woman and I was like first of all mm. she's genius like she worked at the White House like I love her kind of yeah. balance between like everything um but also she credits the cultures that she talks about which I really appreciate oh, yeah. all I need is a sentence mm-hmm. for her to say this is from here and that's mm-hmm. it, you know, that's so. it. That's, and it's not hard to do. It's not hard to do at all. Yeah. And, and I even see like, you know, I, there's a few South Asian like Instagrammers I follow who be like this, you know, recipe is actually in, you know, inspired by something I saw in Mexico. Exactly. That's all you need to say. Exactly. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I feel like we're on the same page there, but yes. yeah, you actually mm-hmm. brought something up. I was going to ask you, which is around, you know, even if you are South Asian and even mm-hmm. if we grew up, right. Um, and I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm talking about you, by the way, I know you've worked yeah, with no, Ayurvedic no. doctors and, um, but there comes a point where I, I even wondered, like, can we also, how much can we be the messengers of Ayurveda if we ourselves sometimes like we've grown up with it, but maybe we haven't mm-hmm. studied it or we haven't mm-hmm. really gained a subject matter expertise, mm-hmm. but sometimes they see influencers and I don't have a strong opinion on it yet, but South Asian influencers who do post a lot about Ayurvedic recipes and hacks and stuff. And I would want them to do it more than anyone else because it's a South mm-hmm. Asian science. However, I also wonder, like, are we equipped just because we are Brown or, you know, grew up with it at home to even represent it truly? You, you ask such good questions. Um, it's funny because I've had this conversation with myself and others many times Um, And I'll give you an example. We were doing a launch event at the detox market and I had an Ayurveda practitioner from the well come join us to talk about Ayurveda. And one of the beauty editors had said to me, why do you need an Ayurveda practitioner to be here? Aren't you the expert? And I said to her, it's a really good question. And I do feel like I have a growing expertise, but much like, and maybe this is where my pharmaceutical background comes into play. It's like, (laughs) I can speak to what I know to be true. 
but there's a limit to what I know to be true. And I need to lean on the experts for the other piece. Like that's why we went to Ayurvedic doctors for the formulas. That's why we cover off on all of those things, because it's important that we are authentic and it's important that we aren't overstepping. And to your point, like I just, you know, started my own TikTok of sharing Ayurvedic things. And I talked to an Ayurvedic practitioner and I said to her, this is what I'm going to be doing, but here's even what I struggle with. I'm not a practitioner. And she said, I don't think that's the expectation, Mm -hmm. but the expectation is that you share within what you know and where you don't like in any other format, you say, let me find out for you and let me ask the experts. And I think, you know, it, it is part of our culture, but there is a risk of us becoming yeah, there is a risk if we just start saying all these things that maybe aren't true. I also think there's a risk of, and I struggle with this a little bit coming from pharma, like um, Ayurveda, I'm going to give a very concrete example. Ayurveda believes you should drink warm drinks on the whole. Mm-hmm. And once I realized that I really bought into it, which made sense. My parents, you know, would keep, they, my dad always said, you shouldn't be drinking cold water. You should be drinking yeah. room temperature water and all that kind of stuff. And the logic behind it makes sense to me. It's, you know, if you think the easiest way to think about it is if you've ordered pizza or pasta or Thai food or Indian food or something that's got a little bit of oil on it, and you were going to wash that dish, would you use cold water or hot water? We mm-hmm. use hot water, right? It helps to break down the oil in a way that the cold water doesn't. I can't explain Absolutely. it. Is there concrete data? I continue to look through like, and there, the data is really, you know, the jury's out on whether or not science the, the science there, there's some very light data that supports it. There's anecdotal data. I've had actually a GI doctor say to me like that she believes it to be true and she's a physician. So I think the risk of us from a cultural perspective is we need to share things that we know to be true, or we need to, like I often say in Ayurveda, we believe because I want people to know the framework by which it's believed versus saying right. this is true. And so I think it's the same thing. Like if we want to talk about something, our grandmother or parents did with us we need to put the frame of that versus saying I know this to be true in Ayurveda versus I know this is what my parents did and so that might sound picky but it's just like how we talked about appropriation like language matters and the way we present ourselves matters I wish more people talked like you Lisa (laughs) (laughs) I wish people who made big decisions thought about it that way because you're so right um there's only so much we know and sometimes even that language differentiation that you said like mm-hmm. in Ayurveda we believe like even if we mm-hmm. might not have all the data points to present mm-hmm. if you drink hot water this is what will happen at least mm-hmm. you know like okay there's this piece of like we believe in it there's like enough mm-hmm. ev- like for us to know that this is a practice but maybe I can't mm-hmm. really necessarily give you a graph yet you know for that yes mm-hmm. um but going back to even just like because especially a lot of this stuff when we talk about Ayurveda um I can't imagine especially in the beginning when mm-hmm. you first started this and you've been doing this for how many years now? Over six now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So mm-hmm. I don't think even six years ago, people were able to really conceptualize Ayurveda in this type of mainstream way. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, like, I remember in an interview that you gave, I was looking it up on detox your life. You had said, there's a quote where you said the greatest challenge, not to quote explain to you, you probably remember <laughs> saying this, <laughs> but just to hearken mm-hmm. back. The greatest challenge I have faced is being underestimated, underestimated by onlookers who think that beauty is cute or assume that growing a global business is near impossible or by potential partners who quietly suggest that Sahajan is a side endeavor to motherhood. 
And I think this really resonated for me because not only did I think about the folks outside of South Asian culture, but even within South Asian culture, where we've often been told that things that don't follow the like strict path for needs Mm -hmm. of stability and just parents being protective, they Mm -hmm. won't encourage things like this. So Mm -hmm. how did you balance that path you have taken while taking, like you took a full-time risk on something that people consider a hobby. How did you mm-hmm. find, like, take that chance? So I would say it was very hard. It was very hard to do it in the face of, as you say, like we're in a culture that has a very um, specific vision of what success looks like. And I think even coming, you know, yes, I'm first generation. Um, also, even just like, I, I joke with this a lot. So I'm from Kerala, my family's Malayali. Like there aren't a lot of Malayali entrepreneurs. Like sometimes mm-hmm. you look across India and you can see, like different cultures have different things that they lean on. And, and so probably I would say as Malayalis, we're academics, we're doctors, we're engineers, but we're not necessarily in the entrepreneurial space. So I was, I lived with that. Like, what will people think? Will people think I've lost my mind? And because there's an element of it too, because we, a lot of us walked away from these rituals. I even thought like, well, my family friends be like, she's lost her bananas. Like she wants people to oil their hair and she wants them to put turmeric on there. Like, I, I had so many, what will people think? And so I, the way I initially managed it was not to tell anybody. So during formulation phases, Mm. during a lot of stuff, there were a lot of people in my life that didn't know. My parents didn't know. My parents found out only a few weeks before it launched and they, their reaction was mixed. And I think they would say that openly. So I'm not talking at a school, but Mm -hmm. the reaction was mixed because I had, I had two children at the time because you know, my dad said to me, no, nobody's going to want to buy this at the store. He couldn't conceive even because of his own experience with culture that someone would want to buy someone who wasn't like going to the Indian store would want to spend money on something Ayurvedic that, that there would be customers and non-South Asian customers. He, he didn't understand the business proposition. And then they thought I had lost it because I had given up you know, a good career. And then they were worried because I had kids. So there was them. And then there was, as you say, there were a lot of people who underestimated it. They still underestimate it. I have, you know, I went to a dinner, uh, like a barbecue during COVID and I ran into some old friends and who were physicians and they were like, so does that skincare business keep you busy? I know we're both looking at each other making eyes. And I was like, oh my gosh, like you really don't, (laughs) like you really think that I'm doing this for sport or like, you know, to fill up my time when the kids are at school or whatever it is that they think. And so I think anytime you're venturing on a new path, it's extremely challenging. I think going into this and being early was amazing, but also really hard because our first, we did a, a launch event here in Toronto associated to TIFF and in and around that time. And most of the beauty editors couldn't say the word Ayurveda at the time, Ayurveda, depending on how you say it, but they didn't even know what I was talking about. And What's amazing right now is even South Asian culture has risen to a prominence and there's so many more South Asian influencers. Like there was nobody I could have invited to that event in Toronto. And now I'd be like, oh my gosh, there's too many people to invite. You know, how do I, how do I narrow the list of influencers? And like, thank God for never have I ever and Bridgerton and all of these things that have, have again gone and just like beautifully created representation for, for the culture and have created an environment where like we're seen as beautiful, our culture seen as beautiful, and people are, are, are opening their eyes to 
oh my gosh, I have so much to learn. And so it's, it's been quite a journey of challenges of, of being worried about what others think again, underestimated and just sort of being sidelined by people not thinking that this had space. I have a South Asian friend. I'll, I'll end this question with this, but I have a really close friend who said to me a number of years ago, cause the beginning years were hard. People were like, I have no idea. Like, I'm not sure that there's a market for this. He's one of my closest friends. And he said, Lisa, maybe there's no market for Ayurveda. Like maybe you just need to stop or maybe you need to just create a skincare brand that doesn't say anything Indian about it because maybe that's what people want. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How did you respond to that? (laughs) I remember there were so many emotions, right? Because a part of you is like, I hope you're not right. Um, And I believed in my heart that he wasn't. And so I kept going, but there was an element of it, which is, and I, and I think we do this when we're embarking on something new or we're business people. So you have to be driven by the, your gut instinct, right? And my gut instinct was like, no, I, I can see it. And I could see the timing. And I kept saying, it's a, it's a timing thing. I just have to continue to plant the seeds and then I will, you know, then there will be the harvest. And, and I could see that and I could see people happening. And, you know, when there were other South Asians who were launching Ayurveda brands, someone said to me like, oh my gosh, does that make you nervous? And I was like, no, it makes me excited because if we're all saying the same thing, then that means that there's a category. And if we're launched, if, you know, there's the presence of competitors, that means that there's more than one person who believes this to be real. And all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden you're not a solo artist, you're, you're a choir. And, and I, and, and trend, the trend data and it, and cause I'm a data person, like six years ago, the trend data said in like seven to nine years, this would be a category. And so here's the good news. It's, the data was right. Absolutely. I mm-hmm. so appreciate how candid and like the humility of your story of it, it didn't sound ever glamorous, like, to be no, honest, like, it sounded really hard. And of really course, hard. now it's easy to see, like, to your point, I do think it's really interesting and great that we're seeing this mm-hmm. moment for South Asian culture to be more represented in mainstream. Of course, mm-hmm. there's always more to go, but it, there is mm-hmm. like a starting of a journey. Um, mm-hmm. And all of a sudden now it's like giving space for people, like people are tapping, like I want to feature these South Asian businesses and mainstream mm-hmm. TV or publications and even just giving that space on social media. Um, but it, that cannot be predicted all the time and you have mm-hmm. to kind of just go with it. And to your point, like there are more people who will probably say no or like no thanks at first. And that gut feeling I think is really where it differentiates the people who last because it's really easy to get discouraged by that. And even as someone, you know, you spoke to me as someone who's like, oh, if I want to, you know, I have these like dreams and aspirations. I'm like, yeah, you have to keep like being like, thanks, but I'm going to continue. Right. Um, And so I appreciate Mm -hmm. you doing that. And even now um, I'm sure you have your days. And so thank you for for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like that great great, answer. (laughs) But how did your kids respond to this when you started it? They were so little that they don't remember me doing something else because again, we're six plus years and my son, so remember I said I was pregnant, like he's almost nine. And so he, you know, in his like little, little years, I was developing it. And then I, you know, launched it after that. So they don't remember me doing something else. They don't have a perspective. What I think sometimes more they, I don't know if they struggle with is the right way to say it, but more that 
where it impacts their life because they, you know, I think kids are resilient. And so they, you know, my, my mom was a nurse. And so I knew that she worked shift work. And so it never fazed me. So if I ever work late in the evenings where I have to travel, like I think kids are resilient on those pieces, but I would say the social media part of it is what impacts them or where they notice it. Everything from like, you know, during the pandemic, mommy's doing an Instagram live to, I just, I think I mentioned, I just launched a TikTok account and my daughter came home and was like, oh my God, some of the people at school are following you. And, um, <laughs> and I was like, great. I need all the followers I can get. I don't even understand TikTok. <laughs> and she was a bit like, uh, you know, but <laughs> I think those are the moments or I'm on the shopping channel in Canada. And I remember dropping her off at school and she probably would have been I'm going to say like grade one, grade two. And we were walking through the schoolyard and another mom said to me, oh my gosh, I saw you on the stocking channel yesterday. And, you know, some kids would be like, eh. some kids would be like, yeah, that's my mom. And she was a bit like, oh, um, <laughs> because I think for her, she wants that life and her life, or not her life. She wants like her mommy to not necessarily have that, that part. So I, I would say it's, yeah. So I would say that's the part they, I don't think they could have, I don't think they really, they know I run, I own the business and I run it, but they don't necessarily know everything. They've maybe seen a tear come in my eye once in a while, but it's the, it's the being out there that I think that's the part that impacts them or, or that they're more aware of. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's so, um, that's so sweet because that's such a kid response. Like, yeah. Oh, me but yeah as yeah. someone who's now like 32 appreciating everything my parents did yes. now I like cannot I'm like on a campaign to make fun like make up for all the brattiness that I showed I my parents and I'm like it comes full circle and I'm sure they will mm-hmm. be like in a place where they're so inspired you know and um oh, for the work so. that you've done oh I'm sure they will mm-hmm. <laughs> it's only a matter mm-hmm. of time <laughs> but I know we're nearing time so I wanted to end with our last piece Um, and this is our trip to Brown. So I try really hard to keep it fast. Sometimes it's hard for me to not follow up, but it's really Mm -hmm. on me to control myself. So Mm -hmm. how this works is I'll ask you a few fun questions just to get to know Mm -hmm. you more as a Mm -hmm. three-dimensional person outside of Ayurveda. Um, but, um, whatever comes to your head first, just figuring out the answer that comes to you. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. Right. First one. What yoga pose is your spirit pose? Oh, cobra. And I'll tell you why, because, and this is bringing it back to Ayurveda, but the Ayurvedic <laughs> practitioner that I worked with, she once described cobra and its relevance is like, when you go up into cobra, you're shedding the skin um, that like holds you back for you to become who you are. And I was like, oh, oh my God, that's I what I want daily. my life to be. I know. I was like, I need to do that more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. You win an unlimited supply of a snack for the rest of your life. It gets delivered to your door every month for 31 days. What would it be? Of a snack? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. This is so hard. Cause I like both sweet and salty. What would I not get tired of? Uh, oh, this is such a hard one. Um, I am going to say cookies um, and do you want a specific kind of cookie? Yeah. yeah. Cookies for sure. I, I could give up. I don't eat cake really. I'm not really an ice cream person, but I need cookies in my life. We'll get along. Um, if we haven't already, <laughs> <laughs> um, what makes you feel sexy? 
Oh, cookies. No, <laughs> good cookies. It's true. Still cookies. Um, you know, it's funny because now I'm being super candid in a post COVID world. I think, cause we don't dress up and we don't do any of those things. I'm like, I felt sexy lately. Um, I think it's for me when I like get dressed up and like do myself up and not that there's like a huge difference, but like the effort I think is, is, uh, it's probably, yeah, but uh, yeah, it does feel like it's been a while, but, um, I think that's a good question. Maybe I need to invest in feeling more sexy. Oh, no, fair enough. The pandemic has mm-hmm. changed that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Who was your has. childhood crush? Girl crush or boy crush? Both. Oh gosh. Um, boy crush. I'm trying to think who was like, I used to get like Tiger Beat magazine, like who was on the walls. There were so many Johnny Depp, actually. I used to think he was so, so, so handsome, but for women, it's interesting. I had like a myriad cause I was kind of nerdy. So like I gave a speech on Indra Gandhi, but I also <laughs> thought like Halle Berry was the most beautiful person I had ever seen. And this is going to sound interesting and weird, but when Carrie Washington was in scandal, which is in my adult life, someone made the comment. I hadn't watched it yet. And someone made the comment that I looked like the lead in scandal and my instant reaction was like, oh, is like, isn't she black? Like, I just like, I was just like, I, I haven't seen the show. And then I watched the first episode and I was like, if I look like a glimmer of her, that would be like my happiest day. <laughs> right. Um, I love that. And also have mm-hmm. never heard in their Gandhi as a celebrity crush. So I love this answer. I know. Um, but now that it, like, and I say this, and I put the caveat on like my parents were very like, I didn't, I know that there's problematic things about her now as an adult that I didn't know as a child but as a child I was like I'm nine years old and the prime minister of India is a woman it's a big deal well even mm-hmm. Tony Depp you know arguably now so we we can't unsee what we saw the last yeah months, we so can't undo yeah, yeah no, it's no, hard with these no. celebrities you really can't yes. stay good for you kind of have to stay <laughs> yeah you can only love them in the moment sometimes mm-hmm. totally um and lastly if you had one word to describe your relationship with your South Asian identity this is a tough one and a big one. What would it be? My relationship would be pride. Um, but it, it's like, I almost see it as like a growth thing. Um, like, cause it's, it's been about growth. It's been about you know, I was a Bharatanatyam dancer and I loved that part of my life mm-hmm. and I loved it and I loved it. But I know that there were moments where I probably, you know, also shied away from being, you know, so prominent with my heritage and with a name like Lisa, as has been pointed out to my girlfriends who have more traditional sounding names, like I could, you know, I could navigate in in the world how I chose. Um, So I would say it's like ultimate pride and in some ways creating Sahajan has been both an homage to my parents and to the culture. I love that answer. Thank you so Mm -hmm. much for ending us on such a wonderful note. Um, Lisa, I can't thank you enough. I had such a great time talking to you and I could have grilled you even more and it just felt like a natural conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. I really like this. The time went by so quick. Thank you. I know. I'm really honored. I got to hear more about your story and your perspective.